listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. As I said in last week's sermon on these final three Sundays of the Easter season, the lectionary places before us readings from the closing chapter of the book of Revelation. It's a book written to a church in the midst of crisis, in which, to again cite the biblical scholar Larry Hurtado, the only good Christian is a dead Christian. Because to live as a Christian during the persecutions under emperors like Nero and Domitian was to court death. And yet, in his strange book filled with symbols and numbers, violence and fire, John the Divine insistently delivers a message of profound hopefulness to the seven churches in Asia to which he originally wrote. This is all going somewhere, John was saying to them, and it isn't anywhere that the empire of violence could possibly have anticipated. Well, as John's revelation moves to its culmination, the symbols just keep pouring out of his pen. For John, this is a vision, a dream, a possibility, and a promise. What his communities have endured, all those lost lives, All of those severed relationships, all of that fear, all of the tears, all of it will come to an end, and a whole new thing will be born. And so he writes, In the Spirit the angel carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Again, as I emphasized last week, John doesn't begin to imagine the people being swept up to some celestial heaven, but instead he sees the new Jerusalem coming down to meet them and to be their new dwelling place. And I saw no temple in that city, John proclaims, no temple, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The temple had been, for Israel, a kind of an intermediary place, a place where people could draw themselves closer to the presence of God through worship, through offerings and sacrifices, always under the ministry of the priests of the temple. Something of God could be approached, seen, even encountered. Yet by the time John is writing his strange book, that temple has been laid waste by the Romans. It's done. A massive structure of such imposing scale, no one really believed it could be felled. Gone. I saw no temple in the city, writes the visionary, meaning no building, no place set aside for sacred things. No temple, No church buildings. Lovely and soul-calming and holy as our sacred buildings, this one in a very particular way, can all seem, they don't last forever. They can't. They won't. 
They don't, but what John realizes is that that's actually good news. Because in the new Jerusalem, the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. In this new heaven and new earth that John envisions, God simply is. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and God's servants will offer worship, he writes. They will see God's face, and God's name will be on their foreheads. They will see the face of God, which is something utterly unheard of in that faith world. In the book of Exodus, Moses asks to see the face of this God, this Lord, who has called him into the impossible task of not only leading the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt, but then trying to form them as a coherent people, an almost impossible task. Moses just wants to have a look at who it is he's been serving, The answer he receives is, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. No one shall see me and live, which really means that humanity, we're limited. We're so limited and so small in some very real sense that to look upon the face of the utterly holy would decimate us, which is true. I mean, that's what Moses comes to realize, but I think it's also true. I mean, I'm convinced by the limits and brokenness of my own small self to know that if were I to look on the face of the utterly holy, wouldn't be much left of me. But, John dares to say, they will, will, we will see God's face. We'll see and it won't devastate us or decimate us. And why? Well, because in John's words, we are written in the Lamb's book of life, which is another way of saying it's all by grace, and by grace we will see. It isn't because we've done so wonderfully at being righteous or that we signed on to the right doctrinal statement of faith. Or dutifully resisted doing those things, that sort of set list of so-called sinful things that maybe people secretly wish they could do and get away with. Uh, No, but it's not even that. It's because your name is on this extraordinarily generous guest list. A guest list of an inveterately hospitable Christ. Now why would I say generous? and hospitable because as John rhapsodizes about this new Jerusalem that he's envisioning, he says that, quote, the nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Do you see that? This is in the closing section of this longish vision John has been sharing. And he says, when this new thing is burst among us, the kings and the nations of the earth will stream to it. Now, in the whole story of Israel, the nations and their kings are almost inevitably the other. The enemy, 
the ones who thwart Israel from being what it's meant to be, the ones who at different times destroy Israel, Babylon, and Rome. As the biblical scholar Brian Peterson summarizes it, we last heard about the kings of the earth in Revelation 19.19, where they were assembled against the Lord. In 17, chapter 17, verse 18, Babylon ruled over the kings. And in chapter 18, verse 3, they were the ones who had committed fornication with the so-called whore of Babylon. We had, Peterson says, we had no hope, no reason to hope for the kings and the nations. Not judging by all that John has talked about already in his book. No reason to hope, and yet here they are, a sign of God's amazing grace. Here they are, walking by the light of the new Jerusalem, their kings bringing their glory right through its open gates. Now that's wild. That's wild that that's where John wants to end. That means there's a place for me and for you and for everyone. Or almost. Because what was that other line we heard read? It might have caught in your ears. Nothing unclean will enter it, will enter the new Jerusalem, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood. So what does that mean? I mean, if the kings and the nations, the ones who'd been up until very recently the adversary, if they're included, if they're part of this new Jerusalem, why is anyone or anything ruled out? Well, N.T. Wright observes that, quote, John is careful to add the warning that this inclusivity specifically does not stretch to those who practice abomination or tell lies. This is necessary, Wright adds, for the same reason that one does not allow smoking in a library or the playing of radios in a concert hall. That which ruins the beauty and holiness of God's new city is ruled out by definition. Now, with all due respect to Bishop Wright, those examples of smoking in the library and a radio in a concert hall, maybe you're a little bit thin. I am, after all, old enough to remember when the library at the University of Winnipeg had designated smoking areas... But perhaps what Wright is pointing to is the truth that there are things that will need to be checked at the door, so to speak, that for some people, the cost of doing that will seem to be just too high. They won't be prepared to let go of those things they've been clinging to. Think, for instance, of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, the one who sulks in the garden while the party is going on for his returned wandering brother. Just as the father had gone out to welcome the young prodigal, the father again comes out into the garden to coax the elder son to come in, to join the party, to celebrate this beginning of a new life for his brother. We had to celebrate and rejoice, the father says, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. That's, as you know, where the parable ends. 
Robert Fair Capon says, He gives the older brother no ending. The parable ends with a freeze frame. It ends like that, with just the father, and the sound goes dead. The servants may be moving around with the wine and the veal, but the sound goes dead. Jesus shows you only the freeze frame of the father and the elder brother. It's the way it's ended for 2,000 years. Of course, the question that hangs over that famous parable and over this scene from the revelation of John is this. Will those who insist on holding on to pride and resentment, like the elder brother in the parable, or to what John calls uncleanness, abomination, and falsehood, will they drop their grip on those things, die to those things, and just come to the party? Or will they hang on to them for dear life? Because they found in those things a strange and distorted sort of life meaning of which they simply can't let go. John sees nations and kings streaming in, relishing the light, the feast, and the glory because they've released the grip. And yet, with what I think is some poignant sadness, he knows that some will not let themselves die to the disasters of their own affections and just join the party. We can be, right to the bitterest of end, a stubborn sort of creature, can't we? Here then, on this sixth Sunday in the season of Easter, Hear then the glory and the promise of John's strange vision. And against it measure the thinness and poverty of what we so often call life. I would, in all humility, advise you to trust the vision. Drop all pretense of control and grip over your own life. And let the Lamb write your name on the most extraordinarily generous guest list of all time and all eternity. In the end, it is the only party in town. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.